From Gimlet, I'm Adam Davidson. I am Adam McKay. And this is Surprisingly Awesome. This is a podcast where you and I try and convince each other that something that seems like it might be really boring is actually really awesome. That was well said. That's it. And we want you to know that even though that's the format, if it's boring, we're going to end by saying it's still boring. We're not going to like manufacture excited outcomes. So there's a real risk here. Yeah. You know, there's no risk. Like we, we edit the tape. We're going to record like an hour. We're going to, even if it is boring, we're going to take like 12 minutes and make it seem. So even if my voice is disinterested, you'll just pitch me up in post and I'll say like, oh, that wasn't that great. It'll be like, that was great. <laughs> yeah, we can uh, do that. All right. Okay. So it's going to end with one of us thinking it's awesome without a doubt. Yeah. All right. So I understand you have a subject that uh, is pretty boring. I've been told what the subject is. It's mold. Yeah, mold. I know mold messes up houses. I know mold, when you leave food out, gets green, gets blue. It's the byproduct of neglect. Sincerely and honestly, I find that a very boring subject. And I'm a little bit thinking, how long is this gonna be? Okay, Dr. McKay, are you ready to have your mind blown? Go ahead, say your feelings about mold. All right. Mold is a sporulating material that utilizes uh, elongated hyphae to pursue both uh, its food. (laughs) (laughs) If you know anything about mold, the one fact you've probably heard is that penicillin comes from mold. I knew this too, but I did not know the full story. The basic story starts in 1928 in St. Mary's Hospital in London. There's a scientist named Alexander Fleming, and he was studying a particular kind of bacteria that kills human beings. And he left a Petri dish full of this bacteria out on the counter and left for a while. And when he came back, he saw that there was a mold growing on it. That's pretty common. Mold is everywhere. And every scientist in the world who deals with Petri dishes knows that sooner or later, their Petri dishes will get infected by mold. But when he looked at this particular Petri dish with this particular kind of mold, he saw something remarkable. The mold was killing the bacteria. That's very unusual. And as he studied it more and more, he realized that this particular mold, which just happened to be floating in the air of his lab at St. Mary's Hospital, creates a compound that kills all sorts of bacteria that are harmful to human beings. So he knows he has this like crazy compound. There's just one moment that I find funny, which is, so he's like, oh, we got to name this thing. And so he wrote down, he's like, penicillium, okay. But would that be penicillin or penicillin? And so he asked in his lab, there are 10 people in his lab. He's like, who likes penicillin? And three people raised their hand. And he said, who likes penicillin? And seven people raised their hand. He said, okay, penicillin. So that's a mold that what we can conservatively say has probably saved 100 million lives. Easily, easily. So there's sort of this amazing journey. So he he discovers this in 1928. 
and that's a constant like almost failing like just one example when they were the very first time they gave like okay we're gonna do a randomized control trial we're gonna in so what they did was they like okay we got some mice we got some guinea pigs all right let's grab the mice we're gonna get them sick with bacteria and we 25 of them we're gonna just not do anything 25 of them we're gonna inject with penicillin right so they do this and the 25 that they do nothing they all die the 25 that they inject with penicillin 24 of them are completely healed right and so they're like oh okay there's something going on with penicillin now they might have grabbed the guinea pigs it wasn't a big choice Mm -hmm. it turns out we now know years later penicillin kills guinea pigs come on so if they happen to do guinea pigs all of the guinea pigs would have died and they would have been like oh yeah penicillin's not that great guinea pigs man yeah It's now 1940. World War II is breaking out. The Germans are bombing London. They know they have this valuable thing. They don't know how to mass produce it yet. At one point, this team of scientists in Oxford were um, so worried about Germany conquering England and destroying this. So they started rubbing it all over the linings of their clothes so that if their lab was destroyed, if some of them were killed, the other ones would have it on their clothes somewhere and they could like bring it back to life. So as you can see, there's such a limited supply of this stuff, but right then is when they need it so badly. People are getting injured in war, millions of people. We need penicillin more than ever, but we haven't figured out how to mass produce it. What happened is the particular strain of mold that Dr. Fleming discovered in that hospital in London just wasn't particularly good at growing fast. It killed bacteria, but it didn't grow fast. So here in the U.S., in a government lab in Illinois, a group of scientists got together and they said, we bet there's another strain of mold out there. There's so many different strains. There's got to be a strain out there that has all the positive benefits. It kills bacteria, but also grows really, really fast. Now, if you're a bunch of scientists in Illinois in the 1940s and you want lots and lots of mold to look at, you go to the grocery store. There is always in a grocery store mold somewhere on some moldy piece of fruit. So they hired this woman named Mary, and she just went out asking everybody for moldy produce. That was her job. Find anything that has mold on it and bring it back to the lab for testing. And one day she returned with a cantaloupe, a rotten cantaloupe that had a mold on it and they scraped that mold and that was a particular type of penicillium penicillium chrysogenum and it just grew way faster and hardier than any other and so most penicillin used is from that cantaloupe and they they call her moldy mary if you talk to any mold researcher they know moldy mary she found the rotten cantaloupe that just happened to have that particularly strong mold that's an amazing story that changes the world in some ways forever, right? Saves saves millions and millions and millions of lives. That's pretty cool. And this story reveals what is so awesome about mold, what's so surprisingly awesome about mold. In fact, it made me realize mold really is the perfect topic for this podcast because mold is around us all the time. Every breath you take, you're breathing in huge numbers of mold spores. 
everything you touch, every surface you touch, you are touching mold spores. You are bathed in a world of mold. But we never think about mold, except every once in a while we open our fridge and we're like, oh man, my bread's all moldy, and we throw it out. Uh, but mold is amazing. There is a mystery in every one of those breaths you take. Just to give you one sense of it, each type of mold creates all sorts of different chemical compounds. Some of them are used to fight off predators. Some of them are used to digest food, to break down plant and animal matter so the mold can eat it. And then most of the compounds, dozens for each mold, millions and millions and millions for molds altogether, we have no idea what they're doing. We have no idea why the mold produces them. But every once in a while, we find out that one of those compounds can have a huge effect on our lives. They can create penicillin. They can do amazing things. In fact, you might this very second be breathing in a mold that is creating a compound that could cure cancer. But some of these compounds, they don't save lives. They do the opposite. And so the U.S. government has set up a special mold police system designed to figure out which molds produce compounds that will kill us? And how do they kill us? And how can we stop them from killing us? So we went to the front lines of the U.S. government's war against mold, which happened to be in this beautiful old Art Deco building in New Orleans. So in each drawer, there's a little frozen chunk in there, and you can it's dehydrated, and it holds the spores in stasis. Oh, wow. That's mold. Hey, Green hi, mold. Yes. <laughs> it's funny. It's both cool and kind of gross. Oh, it's not gross. It's not gross. <laughs> it's just cool. I was talking to Shannon Belts. She's a lab technician at the USDA's Agriculture Research Center. That's where we were. And what she showed me was her mold storage system. Filed away in hundreds of little yellow envelopes were different strains of mold. So this lab focuses on one species of mold, Aspergillus flavus. We have more flavus than anything else, so they're all uniquely numbered. 2000, 2001, 2002. This is a mold that is everywhere. Every breath you take, Aspergillus flavus. It's all around us. Right now, grab your hand, run it through the air, you're touching little microscopic Aspergillus flavus mold. Your body is acclimated to breathing these things and dealing with them. But when it gets into food, especially corn and peanuts, it creates these compounds that break the food down. And one of the compounds it creates is extremely toxic. If you ingest a fair bit of it, it will give you liver cancer. Oh, I see. Okay. That's one of the worst cancers there are. And if you ingest enough of it, it will kill you. The most recent episode was in Kenya in 2004 where they were eating moldy corn. This is Deepak Bhatnagar. He runs the USDA lab Shannon works in. They were storing it in the ground under high moisture, warm temperatures, and the fungus was growing merrily on that corn and producing large amounts of toxin. And these people were eating that corn, and there were at least 200 deaths reported. That's not over time getting liver no, cancer. That's, that's just... That's right away. And that's why this lab exists. Absolutely. Yes. To make sure that I don't eat that toxin. Yes, we are its enemy. You have devoted your lives. We have. Very Many, willingly. many people around the globe have yeah. devoted their lives. That's why we get up in the morning and run to the lab so that we can find new things and 
and try to you know find a solution that will affect a lot of people around the world uh, gets us going every day Now, for anyone listening in America or Europe, Aspergillus flavus is not a threat. The government efforts to prevent it from getting into your mouth are very robust. However, there is a very close cousin of Aspergillus flavus, almost genetically identical, and you eat the product of that mold all the time. In fact, if you're my four-year-old son, Ash, you eat it almost every day because it is your favorite thing. And right here, you have the paradox that is mold. Aspergillus flavus, the one that makes the compound that gives us liver cancer, is nearly genetically identical to one that makes food way more delicious. And it's used by companies like Kikaman and others to make soy sauce. My son can't eat almost anything unless he dips it in soy sauce. And it's used by sake producers to make sake. So it's consumed by the just millions of gallons of it this fungus, which kills hundreds of thousands of people around the world with little differences. People are just guzzling it in Japan. Yeah, and a couple of years ago, Kikaman got concerned because their mold was so similar to the dangerous mold, they were worried, could our mold like mutate and start producing the cancer-causing toxin? So Deepak Bhatnagar and other scientists at this lab we were visiting, they did the DNA sequencing on the special good Kikaman mold, and they looked at the entire genome. They are very, very closely related to this fungus. The genes that were there for making this toxin, they are there, but they are all so heavily mutated, all the genes in there, that it can never revert back to making the toxin. So, Oh, you're, so it, it, it's like a, a machine that has the parts to make the poison, but it just, it's so it, broken it's, that it... That it's so broken that it'll never make the toxin. Wow. And he found there were 22 specific changes, but those 22 specific changes were sufficient to deactivate the machinery that creates that toxic chemical. And he said it's basically mathematically impossible for it to spontaneously genetically make all 22 changes. Wow. Uh, if it did, but it's impossible, then there would be the great Kikoman massacre of 2027. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, that's a movie where we're trying to, like, get Aspergillus flavus into Kikamon, and... It's a good one-line pitch. Just walk in the room and go, we're trying to get Aspergillus flavus into Kikamon. And you watch checks get written in Hollywood once they hear that. <laughs> whoa, whoa, come back here. Come back here, young man. <laughs> We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Adam and I will take our relationship to a whole new level, all because of mold, after this word from our sponsors. We are back with Surprisingly Awesome. I'm Adam Davidson here with Adam McKay. Uh, so, to give some context to mold, do you remember back in high school biology class, there's the Linnaean classification of all living things. There's like the species, the order, the phylum, and then all the way at the top, 
there's the kingdom, the huge category. So there's the kingdom animalia, which includes us human beings and whales and also millipedes and jellyfish. There's also the kingdom of plants. Those are creatures that photosynthesize their food and don't move around. Well, fungi are their own kingdom. They're on that level. They're completely separate from animals and plants. They're their own way of living, their own way of figuring out how to reproduce, how to get food. And probably of the three, plants, animals, and fungi, fungi are the most interesting, the most surprising with the widest array of strategies now, I, I should note that there are a whole lot of creatures under fungi. There's yeasts and mushrooms and things we just call fungi, even though they're in the big category. Mold is one of them. And sometimes I'll be talking about some of the other fungi and not just mold. Gotcha. I'm all right with that. I'm going to let you go on that. Okay, so mold is the most creative. It is the ultimate survivor. And let me tell you about this one mold that I love, and it's really unique strategy for survival. It's called Palabolus. Okay. Now, Palabolus specializes in the poop of herbivores, of deer and, and other animals that eat plants. It's in the digestive tract of a deer. The deer poops, and now the mold is in the poop. Now, there's a problem. For its kids to survive, it needs to get in another deer. That's a key part of its life cycle. So Palabolus, it's in the poop, and it starts moving. And as soon as it touches the edge of the poop and, and there's some light coming from outside, it starts growing in that direction. Growing? Growing. It has a very primitive eye, and it grows until that very primitive eye is fully illuminated. And now it knows, okay, I'm clear of the poop. And then it creates all these spores, it builds up this pressure, and then it goes and shoots six feet in the air. Six feet? One little centimeter goes six feet in the air. Wow. It lands on leaves far away and just waits for a deer to walk by and eat it. And then that deer creates the process all over again. Why does it want to be pooped out of a deer so badly? What does that do for it? It's trying to find some niche in the ecosystem where there's not a lot of competition, where they can get food and they can reproduce. So, so, they, so there's not a lot of competition. Deer poop. Deer poop for now. I mean, it might become pretty hot. So we have one last stop here on the journey to take mold from boring to awesome. And this stop on the journey is designed to hit home to you in particular, Mr. Adam McKay. Molds, it turns out, are a huge part of life on Earth and human life in particular. They help break down our bodies when we die. They're instrumental in breaking down dead plants and trees. I talked to one mold scientist who said, it's hard to imagine the world without mold. There would just be leaves piled up for miles and miles, mountains everywhere, and dead bodies everywhere, never breaking down, never disappearing. But I was looking for something less abstract and more immediate, a way that mold tangibly affects our lives. So I found somebody to help figure this part out, and I want to see if you can guess who this is. Here's clue number one. My uh, grandpa he didn't learn how to write, and Grandma wanted to teach him 
at least sign his name, but he was too proud. So he just used an X for his name. No idea. Okay. All right. Clue number two. We're here at Mary's Woods in Lake Oswego, Oregon, and uh, it's a retirement community. I moved here four and a half years ago with my cat, Sunny. Absolutely no idea. Famous actress of some kind, or how would I know who this person is? All right. um, One more clue. The McKays were fun people, and... um, when they all got together, they had a good time joking and um, enjoying the time they had together. So it's a relative of mine? Who I still don't know who this is. Hi, Adam. This is your great aunt, Doris. I always wanted to meet you. Hopefully we will get to meet each other maybe soon. Oh, my God. I have been intimately involved with your family for the last two weeks. Do you remember I called you in Portland and I was like, I really wish I could tell you what I'm doing? I was driving to your great aunt Doris. No. So I I had this idea that one of the greatest impacts of mold on the modern world is that the potato famine in Ireland in the 1840s and 1850s was caused by a particular kind of mold. A million people died and two million came to America. So most Irish people in America today came here because of a mold that killed the potatoes that their great-great-grandparents or great-great-great-great-grandparents ate. So I was curious about this. Huh. Because um, I was trying to figure out, is, like, is, are the McKays, I figured it's Irish, and are the McKays here because of mold? What I learned was that the potato famine did drive them here, but not in the way you might think. The original McKays were from Scotland. And they were moved to Ireland in the 1600s. Your family were very poor linen weavers. I love that you know this, and I don't. My my great-great relatives were poor linen weavers. I know where. I know, like, I saw on Google Maps, like, the block. They're from... Oh, where in what area of... They were in a parish called the Grange of Dundermott. The Grange of Dundermott. Isn't that about the coolest name there is? Sounds like the name of a molt. (laughs) (laughs) The end of this journey is so crazy, but I want to save it. This is amazing. So we don't know of any of your family dying from the potato famine. Probably some did, but we don't know of that. We we know a lot about your family, weirdly. They would have been very hungry, though apparently, from what we know, not yet hungry enough to leave. So they stick it out through the famine years. But the potato famine changed Ireland in horribly negative ways. It destabilized the government, and it heightened divisions between Catholics and Protestants. In other words, the potato famine helped turn Ireland into a terribly troubled country that people wanted to flee. And then, in 1882... Mold finally made your family leave Ireland. What happened was a new mold ate away all the peat moss. Peat moss, that kind of grassy, pretty thing that makes Ireland look so beautiful, was the main source of fuel. Your family and every other poor Irish family would cut the peat moss, dry it out, and that's how they would cook food, heat their homes in the winter. Well, 
a virulent outbreak of mold killed all the peat moss. So finally, in 1882, your family left. So the potato thing they got through, but the mold infection of peat. Plus the violent crisis created by the potato famine mold. Finally, they said, all right, we're getting out of here. There were 15 in the party, and they decided to homestead in Nebraska. They had wagons and horses to pull them. You would just show up, and if you were willing to farm, they'd just give you some acres? Yeah, and uh, it was 160 acres, and uh, they, they had to dig their own wells. But one of the uncles was a great uh, well digger, and he dug wells for everybody. This is very strange. I got to say, I never imagined we would talk about mold, and then suddenly I would be learning about my family history. So Doris and I really hit it off. We had a great dinner. She really likes drinking, which was fun. <laughs> She's really funny. She's cool. So we were talking, and she was showing me her family tree and the McKays and, um, and telling me, you know, we're not all Irish. Some of us were English. So Doris, I, uh, we just discovered something, and I grabbed my microphone. What, what did we just discover? Something about Abraham Brown. Yeah, you, you were showing me your family tree. <laughs> And it rang a bell, and I looked up Abraham Brown on my little family tree, uh -huh. and we're descended from the same man, Abraham Brown. <laughs> Born 1585, died 1650s. It says, your 10th great-grandfather for me. I'm so impressed that you came all the way to, to Lake Oswego to find out that we're really related. <laughs> we're cousins. <laughs> That's amazing. Cousins? Yeah, we're distant cousins. But we were just saying distant that cousins, though. Yeah. You're a dangerous individual. <laughs> like you somehow took mold and we find out we're distant cousins. That's crazy. That was crazy. Who's our link? Who's the guy? Uh, an Englishman who came, he was born in the 1500s in, in England, came to America in the very early 1600s. He had a lot of sex. He had a lot of sex. <laughs> You're a direct descendant of one of his daughters, I'm a direct descendant of another one. Man, oh man. If somehow mold led to me meeting for the first time a great aunt and learning about my family, that's, that's insane. Thank you, mold. <laughs> Thank you, mold. We're cousins. <laughs> that is crazy. Today's show was produced by Caitlin Kenny, Eric Menel, Alex Bloomberg, and Robin Woley. It was edited by Peter Clowney. Mixing and original music by Mark Phillips. More music by Ellery Kramer. Our theme song is by the great Nick Brattell. Special thanks to Jeremy Moore, Justin Trosclair of the St. James Cheese Company, and David Nally. George Hudler's book, Magical Mushrooms, Mischievous Molds, was a huge help for this episode. I'm Adam Davidson. I am Adam McKay. And this has been Surprisingly Awesome. <laughs>